0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. The art of theater is really just storytelling, and the stories that are told from region to region often come from within those communities and offer a shared experience on the stage. Broadway illustrates this with musicals like In the Heights, Allegiance, and The Color Purple. Even shows like Noises Off and 42nd Street provide a backstage glimpse... Of the theater community well today's guest is here to share her stories as a Native American and the specific experiences that have helped her foster and create a unique kind of storytelling that values the past as much as the present and future
1: new my name is Muriel Miguel Miguelrightston and Waganadili I am Kuna and Rappahannock The Kunas come from off the coast of Panama they're a sovereign nation it's called Kuna Yala and Rappahannocks come from Virginia, and we are still there and This is the Powhatan Nation. My mother and father, coming from two different nations and so far away from each other, met in Brooklyn. They fell in love in Brooklyn they married in Brooklyn, and they had their family in Brooklyn. I grew up in Brooklyn. I am a director of a group called Spider Woman Theatre. And we've been here as one of the oldest Native feminist theater groups in the States. I am truly, truly a city Indian.
0: Muriel has been working in the world of experimental theater since the 1960s, when she was an actor in the Open Theater, a pioneering avant-garde ensemble founded by the visionary director Joseph Chaikin. When Spider-Woman was formed in 1975 by Muriel, along with her two older sisters, Lisa and Gloria, she conceived it as a direct pushback against the sexism that she says was plaguing the American Indian movement at the time. As part of her creative journey, Muriel developed the art of story weaving, which is Spider-Woman's signature indigenous performance practice. You'll learn more about this as Muriel intertwines stories and experiences throughout our conversation, sharing important moments that have shaped who she is as a woman, a Native American, and an artist.
1: And uh, we go up to the counter, and this pharmacist said to her, Go back where you came from. Just like that. And uh, what I remember is turning and looking at this pharmacist and saying, Where do I go?
0: Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning top 25 theater podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer talking with fellow creatives each episode of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is com, where you can subscribe to bonus episodes and offer your own financial support to the production of this podcast. Again, that's com. Before beginning, Muriel wished to give a land acknowledgement for wherever you may be, as well as her home in Brooklyn.
1: Wherever we are at this moment, this earth has been maintained by others for us. We know significant events took place that took the protection away from the land we stand on now. But we also know the sweetness from the berries and the love and joy shared between all our ancestors. The Pequots, the Iroquois, the Shinnecock, Patinnecock, Montauk, and the Canarsie. This is why we are still here. I feel very honored and proud to be talking to all of you. Thank you, Patrick.
0: Welcome, Muriel. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I really thank you for joining me. Thank you. Now, you are the first Native American that I've had on the podcast, and what is it about your culture that you hope someone outside of the Native American community
1: understands. I'd think, like in New York City and Brooklyn and so forth, a lot of community, Long Island, a lot of community and Native people. And we are not dead. That and trying to erase all the awful stuff that was said about Native people. I mean, you know, it was pushed on by TV and movies, the screaming painted-faced Indian killing people. And uh, that's important to me. That's
0: very true, that over the decades, TV and film, they've literally painted Indians, Native Americans, as one type of character. Right. And I think it's important, no matter who you are, where you're from, that you be seen as a multidimensional being.
1: Yeah. And the terrible thing that's happened to us, and uh, just walking down the street, what can happen to you, and how you get all these names. You know, you called all kinds of names. Well,
0: the first story that you wanted to talk about was when you grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And when you were in elementary school, you were told by your social studies teacher that Native American culture was dead. Now, what prompted the teacher to even say this?
1: They were talking about go west, young man, and the settlers, and that's how he bridged into that with talking about these people are dead now, that the great United States of America killed these people so we could have land. That's why it's so important to make the land acknowledgement in the beginning of anything. That's how I feel. Anything I do, that land acknowledgement comes in. And so how did you react when the teacher said this? How did you feel about that? Well, what happened that living on the East Coast, it was a time when so many ceremonies were prohibited. It was a time that people went to jail. And people started to travel across the country. And a lot of people came to New York City. And they came from Wild West shows, rodeos, all these different ways of traveling across. And and a lot of time, medicine people came also. And they met families like us, who the young ones are like sponges. They really wanted to know more about other Native people. And with that, wanting to know other Native people, a lot of their songs were shared with my father and my uncles. A lot of dances were. They went back and forth. And within that group, we had Native people coming down from Canada, mostly Iroquois people that were coming down from Canada to work uh, as steel workers. And they brought their children. They brought their families. And we met these uh, young people. And I wasn't even a teenager. We were like 11 years old, maybe a 13-year-old in there. And it was wonderful. We spent time talking to this uh, minister, and we asked if we could use his cellar of his church to be together and to learn songs and dances from each other. And that's what we did. So what happened was I was in a social studies class, and this man gets up and says, there are no Indians anymore, and uh, they're dead, their culture is dead. And I couldn't sit there and listen to that, Uh, even if I was 11 years old. I couldn't. And I got up and said, we're not. We're very much alive. And I don't even know what I said to him. But I remember how he treated it. He Uh, called me up to his desk, and I had a bandage on my arm. And uh, he said, what is that? And I said, I got caught or something. And he looked at it, and he said, it's dirty. So I, at that moment, realized that he was putting me down. Those words weren't put in there. He was trying to make me feel bad and not proud of who I am. Hmm. And what happened was that I was not the only one getting into trouble. All these different young people in different schools were getting into trouble for the same reason, that, We said, no, that's not right. That's not true. And we started to show people what we did. And so we started to push the idea that we would go to different schools on assembly day and talk about our culture and who we were. And we were very, very proud of it. Very proud of it. Our families were very proud of it. This was the group
0: of young students and people. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We were called little eagles. (laughs) It was a good name, and I'm told it was given by a man called Jim Thunderhawk, because he was very proud that we were doing this. It was coming out of nowhere for a lot of people. And so that's what we did. We put on our outfits, we went on, and we talked about ourselves.
0: And these were for the whole school, so it wasn't just for other Native Americans. It was for everyone in the school. We
1: came in, and we would sing, and we would dance, and we'd tell stories. How did people react to that? Well I don't know how they reacted because my feeling was I was so proud to do it, and and it was more like so there, <laughs> we're alive. <laughs> that was my reaction to it. Yeah. And Little Eagles, we grew up. It became the Thunderbird American Indian Dancers, and uh, they're still going. They have a powwow and queen in July every year, and the money that comes in. Our scholarship funds were for Native students from across the country. Now we're over 50 years old. I, I haven't been there a lot because my work you know, takes me other places.
0: And how do you feel about you know what was started by a group of teenagers and younger that blossomed and grew into this decades-long organization?
1: We're very proud of it. I mean, there's the American Indian Community House. There's Spider Woman. There's a lot of us that tell our truth. a matter of fact, this weekend was a powwow at the Foxwoods Casino. It was amazing. Over 800 Native people were there. And, and uh, we did a, a ceremony for my son-in-law who passed during the COVID. And we all danced. And uh, sitting there and seeing all these people at a powwow and realizing that this is our community. And meeting people I haven't seen since they would touch. You know, some huge guy would come to me and say hello Muriel and talking. I had no idea who they were. He said, I'll always remember you. Now, well, I met him when he was like maybe the oldest, eight. And that was part of all of us being together like that. That that kind of powwow, that kind of meeting people, the kind of things that happened were one family would take in another family to live with them for a while until they got themselves together, and, and uh, my family did a lot of that.
0: Yeah, in researching, that was something that your family did. You would bring in people, and they would stay with you for days, weeks, maybe longer. And Oh, yeah, years, some of them. <laughs> yeah, years, some of
1: them. I mean, I think of one guy, Douglas Grant, but my mother found him, it was a cold night, and it was raining, and he was under a streetlight. She passed him, and she realized that he was a Native guy. So she went home and got my father, and he came over, and my father talked to him and said, Well, you can stay in the house, and we'll give you food if you're hungry, and so forth. I guess I was born already, but I was still in the crib when he went off to war. And uh, that was the Second World War, and, and he went off. And I remember that. He was my babysitter. My mother left him with me, and I have drawings that he would tell stories. And as he was telling stories to me, he would draw all these wild things and wolves and and uh, cougars and all kinds of things. And, and, uh, and how he got me to bed, a lot of times, if I really resisted, he said, I'm going to tell you. A scary story. And boy, I almost dropped over. His scary stories were scary. <laughs> And I'll always remember him because I thought he was my brother
0: Oh, how funny
1: And so there were many people like that and still in the communities
0: And it's interesting that you bring that up because I would assume that these Native Americans that you've known that are in your community, they're all from different tribes, it's not all just one group That's right And I looked it up, there are currently 574 federally recognized tribes living within the U.S., probably more that may or may not be recognized That's right but how much of an overlap in history and culture are there among the different tribes? Uh, or, or are most of them distinct and separate in, in some way?
1: Yeah, it's, it's Sometimes it's like meeting uh, an Italian and an Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's like that. And sometimes, you know, the interesting thing is that the uh, Sami from way up in Finland, they really wanted to meet us my sisters and I, and we really wanted to meet them. And then, you know, they talk about caribou, like people here talk about buffalo or, or elk, and the way they wear their shoes or all of this. And, and it, it was that kind of a talk back and forth. Of, oh, you do that, we do that too. <laughs> and that saw me. And they went through the same thing that we went through. Their land was taken, they were scooped up, and they were forbidden to talk their language. They went through residential school also. No, mm. so it's amazing when you meet people that you don't expect, and, and they are clan people also. We're not, we're not only talk, talking about North and South America, we're talking about people that came from all the way up there. Another thing I remember is that we were in, I think, Sweden, and uh, we were invited there by the Sami. It was a festival of different nations, and so we were there, and and, uh, a young woman from the back of the uh, Ural Mountains. What was so interesting was that when we started whatever we were going to do, we all did the four directions.
0: And for those who don't know, just explain what four directions mean.
1: Four directions, the north, the south, the east, the west, and saying hello to those places, and thank you letting you be there. And then there's the sky and the earth. And it was like when I realized that we all did four directions. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting when you can meet people from far away and yet still have such a shared experience and common way of communicating.
1: Yeah. And listening to the woman that came from the back of the Ural Mountains was amazing because She said she came from a village, you know, and they said, You are a Soviet, you're Russian. She says, No, I'm not. And they said, You have to say that you are a Russian, or we'll take you out of school. Happens all over the world, that type of bigotry, that type of really pushing.
0: Well, that leads us into the second story you wanted to talk about in the 1970s and how you began to see that in activist circles that the women around you were being marginalized in these groups. and So you created a show to deal with that anger and frustration. What were you hoping to accomplish with writing that show?
1: When I work, you know, I get an idea and then I start pushing it. and. One of the things that I know from my family and from all the people that are, have always surrounded me is that we tell stories. And we tell stories a lot. You know, they're creation stories, or they're you know, so-and-so met so-and-so. We tell these stories. And so I wanted to use storytelling, like I understood storytelling, to create a story piece. And at the same time, it was what I called the revolution. You know, it was the takeovers, the uh, wounded knee, the, uh, the young students, not Native, that would, you know, the sit-ins and so forth. All that was going on at the same time. But I realized that the women were not equal. And in my mind, in a revolution, a woman is equal. And then to hear the horror stories that came out, and all that was covered up, that women were doing a lot of work, but they were not being recognized. And I was really angry about that. And then walking down the street and having someone whistle at me or make disgusting noises at me got me furious. And I was getting angrier and and angrier, and I couldn't figure out, like, where is this anger coming from? yes. Oh, I, I see where it is there, but when it bushwhacks me, you know, when I turn around and I really give it to someone, you now where does that anger come from? CFOs and controllers, there's a better way to manage cards, expenses, travel, and reimbursements. You need a unified spend platform from Brex that lets you control all your spend in one place, automate compliance, and close the books faster. Get started at brex.com. And so I started to think of it that way. And so I asked different women, some of them were my students and my sisters, who really thought talking about it. And I had six, seven people that uh, I did workshops with around the city. And then I started to really talk about anger and what, uh, what anger is and why aren't we telling our stories. From there, we started to work. And it was no holds barred. We could tell any story we wanted. And with that came some wild stories. And then how do you put them in? How do you put them into a piece?
0: Weaving all of these stories together.
1: Yeah. And so I did another piece that at the Washington Square Methodist Church. And uh, a close friend who I grew up with, who was a beautiful uh, weaver, did finger weaving. She wanted to tell a creation story, and that creation story is by the woman's stories. And then another woman who had a dream about making love to Jesus. So I put the one that was telling the creation stories, I put her on like three big boxes, wooden boxes in the church. And I dangled the uh, finger weaving that she was doing. And so she did finger weaving as she told these stories and also put a film of water, like a brook, running through where we were talking. And we told the stories together. And sometimes the words were together. Sometimes it was a breath. Sometimes we would listen to one thing that would bring another thing from another person. That was the first time I ever did that kind of weaving. And uh I understood it. I understood it from listening to my uncles and aunts and everyone telling their stories at a table and I was under the kitchen table you know, I would listen to these stories that they would tell and you know, like how Aunt Lizzie met Uncle Joe uh, the wedding over here, someone getting kicked out of the house, I listened to them and you know, the laughter in between and then like the breath and someone starting some a story and also I was part of open theater
0: Yeah, you worked with the famed experimental director Joseph Chaikin and were part of his open theater.
1: Yeah, and Joe said one day he wanted to tell stories. And I thought to myself, oh, that's easy. I understand storytelling from, you know, from my toenails all the way up. (laughs) It's part of my culture. And that's where it started, with Joe talking about stories and what they are and, and how to breathe in them and, and how to not Mickey Mouse them, but to, you know, find, find the sounds and the movements of that. And after you listen to a story, how do you get up and tell that story back to the person that told it to you? And out of it came Spider-Woman.
0: Now, I visited the the Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., and were there that they perform authentic dances and rituals? And, and, and I would venture to guess that when it comes to the idea of performance, that's probably what most people associate with Native Americans. But but as far as theater, this idea of storytelling, would you say that that's the Native American type of theater, this,
1: uh, this storytelling and story weaving? Story weaving was my idea. You know, you could weave three, four stories together and you'll find a connection in there that makes it a whole. If you think about it, in my house, the stories were told. And sometimes uh, a song would come out of it. And then you think of other nations around the States and South America. and Some stories are only told at wintertime. So they're all different. And some stories are not to be told. And why is that? who knows (laughs) whatever it is part of their background and and sometimes you have to get permission or it's a family story and you have to get permission from that family Mm -hmm. i never had to do that because the stories come from from us but that is what i know can happen does that answer your question it did. It did. Uh, this
0: is as much an education for me as it is, you know, just a conversation because I'm trying to learn as much as I can based upon your experience. Well, you know, I'm no, uh, I'm not the boss of Indian culture. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, of course. You know what you grew up with and your experiences and that yeah. I think when it comes to learning about any particular group pulling out one person is a very individualized experience and it's important to recognize that that is one person's experience but not necessarily indicative of an entire people or community and so I certainly take your stories as being your own and gives a window into what it's like possibly for the community but at least for a certain section of it.
1: Yeah well you know it really tells the story you'll find a word that really means something. And it's not only that, it's the breath and the listening to the other person. That's what's important.
0: It is interesting, that idea that, and, and you were talking about, you know, weaving it in and sometimes actors on stage will breathe together and their stories may go in different directions, but there's always that cohesive moment of breathing together. And, I've been in several acting classes where they talk about the breath. And certainly as a singer myself, the breath is very important because the breath is the the foundation upon which we build our song and our voice. And so I imagine that in your storytelling, that breath also becomes a foundation for where the story is going to go.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of listening in it.
0: Well, for the third story that you wanted to share, it picks up where we left off, where you and and your two older sisters, you founded the Spider Woman Theater, and the three of you have often been described as the, the matriarchs of Indigenous theater. In North America. <laughs> I, did, I didn't know if you knew that, but that, that is what uh, some people call you.
1: <laughs> Does that mean we're old? We're old. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so, when the Spider Woman Theater was in Toronto, you were doing a show there called The Sun, Moon, and Feather. At that time, you were given a baby quilt by a young Ojibwe girl named Lenore
1: Kishik Tobias. Right. And sh- Lenore came with her, t- her her three children, three girls that she had. And we were, you know, we were just sitting there now. The show was over. And, and the first one came up and said to my older sister, Hello, my name is Lisa, my sister's name. And the second one came up and said, Hello, my name is Gloria. And the third one said, Hello, my name is Muriel. And we said, What's going on? And Lenore said, this is the first time they've ever seen people like you on stage and they're so impressed that they wanna be like you. <laughs> and it was that feeling of like, wow. They never saw people that looked like them on stage. That's what the mother said. And and it really hit something in our hearts. She also called us role models. And that really Knocked us off our seats. We were, not, we were so busy trying to get food on the table and getting money. We never thought of ourselves as role models. And we talked about it a lot, the three of us.
0: That must have felt like a responsibility now. Oh, you're now being looked up to by, yeah. uh, by the next generation as far as what is possible.
1: Yeah. And that was something that you always had to think about. And it, that never occurred to me. And uh, what happened was this, uh, the youngest one was her birthday. It was August, and my birthday's in August. And she came to me, and uh, she gave it to me. I didn't know what it was, this package. And I opened it, and it was a patchwork quilt. And she said, I'm giving you my comfy blanket because I'm not going to need that anymore. I know she was maybe seven or eight. You know. And I was like again thrown, like, oh my God. <laughs> you know <laughs> And and I told her we were going to put it into our uh backdrop. but our backdrop is huge quilt and and that and it goes and it goes up there with the quilts. Does quilt making uh, have a specific significance to you? I mean, there were a lot of sad stories about people not having clothes and not having You know, being so poor that they used to patch together things. You know, that's one story. When I was uh, sun dancing, I was given quilts. And I came back to New York, and I had these quilts. And I really thought, what am I going to do with these quilts? And I started to rearrange them on the studio where we were working. And then my sister said, I have something just for the middle." So we put it in the middle. Then we asked the other women if they would uh, contribute something to this piece. And uh, everyone came in and had something that they gave to the piece. Now we weren't all native then; we were, you know, uh, uh, other people besides native then. And that's what we use, and that's our trademark up to this day: is the backdrop. That's the quilt, a huge quilt. I don't know how. The exact fault is
0: and does it continue to grow with each passing year, or has it stayed the same? It has
1: stayed the same now because it's my sister and myself and one sister passed, and the women that came and went through that that time. but now we do a thing called fabric workshop. What we do is bring in lots and lots and lots of fabric all kinds. And we bring in buttons and beads and shelves and all, all kinds of leather. And we asked the women to pick out a piece of fabric that reminds them of them. And they sought to work it. And I said, well, if you have a story and you want to put it into this patch, uh, do so. If you don't want to, don't. You know, whatever you do, you don't have to tell the story to us. We'll take that and put it into another quilt. We find that women talk when they're using their hands. And we talk to all these women. We bring in food. We bring in cornbread and soup and tea and stuff. And people eat and talk and make their patch. I love that workshop.
0: And so it sounds like Spider Woman, yes, it's a theater company and it tells these stories. But it's also about bringing a community of women together and supporting one another.
1: That's true, uh we did it with Australian women, and uh we just met you know different uh women and different nations along the way on a daga, and you know different people that we uh we just did these workshops and uh, this is part of our our backdrop. And It all started with that little girl we <laughs> 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 <Very> that <fed> up
0: <laughs> and so as you've gone on to create more pieces, do you now? Think about your audience, like that little girl. Do you do you consider how they're receiving and how they're going to take certain stories? And as you craft and weave these stories together,
1: usually I have some thought that's going on in my head. We did a a, a cabaret once because I was thinking about romance and how it gets you and so forth. So I I uh, thought of this thing. And it was called an evening of disgusting songs and Pukey images. and it was a cabaret. And my sisters were getting tired of wearing the rags that we were wearing. (laughs) So (laughs) it was time for them to get dressed up. (laughs) And so we did this real crazy cabaret, and uh, it was crazy but still talked about romance. That was putting the light on romance and how you fall for it. And then we did another piece called uh, Lisa Strada Number, and Lisa Strada, you know, there's a lot of phallic symbols and all oh, men and running after women and that 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 that. So we did it, and we developed characters. There was only one phallic symbol in it, and that was a clothespin. <laughs> That was it a prick? <laughs> <laughs> and we told all these wild stories. And my Lisa Strata was played by my older sister, and she dressed up in a in this like harem skirt, and she did belly dancing, and and she had binoculars around her neck because she was keeping a watch on on the war that was going on. <laughs> my other sister. She wanted to be Juliet, and so she did a whole thing on being Juliet. And the idea was she would be, never be asked to do Juliet, and so she went for it. At the end, Lisa Strata gets up there and says, okay, the war's over. Now you can go back to your husband. You can go back to your husband, and we rebel. We don't want to go back to our husband. We want to stay, and some women want to go back with another woman, and Lisa Strata has a fit. And then we start talking about think of how great it could be if we had this independence all the time and we started a creation story, and out of the creation story came these things the uh, corner stories, a creation story there and Talking about blood and blood dropping, and, and out of the blood dropping, you could because you know, you lift your skirt and you zoom around and you drop blood onto the land, and, and this blood becomes plants and valleys and so on. And at the end of that, we just announced ourselves, you know, my name is Glory and I have a big scar on my belly. My name is Muriel, and I'm too fat. And then we went right into Pretty Girls Like a Melody. That was the end of the show. (laughs) But it told a lot. It sure told a lot. I
0: bet it did. I bet it did. It sounds like Spider Woman gives women a chance to do things that they might not get cast in or to do roles that they would normally not get to.
1: That's right. And, uh, we did all those songs. If you go away, if you'll never stay, or, I, I love you. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> We did, we, did, we, uh, we brought in a, a, a magician to teach us tricks. <laughs> <And> <laughs> we, we did this whole thing about being elevated. <laughs> My older sister was a, a leader singer, and she wanted to sing something from an opera. You know, So she sang an aria. And in the middle of the aria, we elevated <laughs> <laughs> Do Of course. Why, why wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God.
0: Though Muriel has been crafting her own theater for decades now, she has also sought to work and study at other venues, like the Lincoln Center and Juilliard. In this week's bonus episode, Muriel recounts the time as a teen when she auditioned for Juilliard as a dancer. But she didn't have any ballet slippers at the time, which caused quite a fuss in the room. Now, to get bonus episodes like these, it's quite simple, actually. And there's only a few clicks away. Because while podcasting is enjoyable, it isn't cheap. And for just a few dollars a month, you can not only support Why I'll Never Make It but you'll also get to hear audition stories and other conversations with guests that you won't get in these free episodes. So please consider lending your financial support to this podcast with a monthly subscription by going to com and click subscribe, or just look for the link in the show notes. I was
1: also thinking of Another thing that happened when I was really young, these two other people and myself, we were uptown someplace where they live. And we were trying to remember a round dance song. And we were singing it as we were going down the block. And we were singing it and singing it. And we go into this pharmacy. And this pharmacist stares at and, us uh, and, you know, kind of showing off. We you know the song. And uh, we go up to the counter. And this pharmacist said to us, Go back where you came from. Just like that. And uh, I remember the other two turning around and going out. But what I remember is turning and looking at this pharmacist and saying, where do I go? Because <laughs> it never occurred to me, that, where else did I go? This is the land. This is where we were brought up. This is where we learned our song. Where do, where do we go? And I'll always remember, we were really young. We were probably in that same category 10, 11, 12.
0: In the years since that experience, because this, that's a, unfortunately, that's a phrase that many people hear in all your years since, since you heard it yourself. Have you been able to figure out why people say that, why people think that, like where that idea comes from?
1: No, I remember it because it was so strange. We knew where we, we, we were from. You know, it's like land acknowledgement. We knew where we were from, who we were. And to have someone say that, I was insulted, and I was the only one that stayed, which made me scared. But I think, going back to what you're saying, it's it's a curiosity. i like, where would you send us? <laughs> right. <laughs> where would you send us? And I think that, Curiosity stayed with me for the rest of my life, that type of curiosity. You're making me think about things I haven't thought of. <laughs> 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 haven't thought of in a long while. Like that kind of curiosity really stayed with me. You know, how does this happen? How does that happen? Why does this happen? And I think go back where you came from is part of that.
0: And it sounds like that, whether with Spider-Woman theater or in your own directing, acting, the things that you've written and created, that you're actually answering that question. You're showing where you've come from. You're showing the places you've been, the things that you've experienced, and where home is to you.
1: Yeah. That's why I never made it. <laughs> 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 But I was thinking about this oh, the yesterday and so forth. And that, you know, that big guy that came to me and said he knows me since uh, since he was nine years old and still remembers me. And then another one talked about he was beating up a kid. It was on the res and he was beating up a kid. And I came out and I pulled him off of the other kid and yelled at him and told him that he, he couldn't do stuff like that. And he, he said to me, I was crushed. I was crushed because... I had such a crush on you. <laughs> he was like maybe 10 and I was like 21 or something like that. <laughs> that he was telling me that. So I was thinking that, though I guess that that's how I made it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said for longevity and, and making an impact where, where you are.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, you don't think about it. You, you know, you go and you, you do what you have to do. And my curiosity, which is, you know,
0: <laughs> <laughs> would you say that that curiosity that that would be your secret to longevity
1: about being in this business so long yeah, well you know everyone in my family is in the business going back to my father who did the uh you know up in kanashi and all these different places uh they called them snake oil shows before i was born my father would put on his whole outfit and uh, he made a uh, uh, bathtub gin or something. I don't know. He made something and he would put it in these fancy little bottles and he would sell them on the street, on the street corner. And my mother called it snake oil. <laughs> but he made money. He got money from it. it. It was before I was born, it was the depression. And uh, a lot of the families that came in were all doing shows around town or up in Canarsie or, you know, everyone in a way, was in showbiz. So we grew up, we were doing that. You know, we were dancing on stage. We, we would look at the uh, guys that did the whips, you know, the bull whips and the lassos and all that stuff. We would watch them. They were like troops that went around in the city and outside the city and so on. And And some people went on tour. So I wanted to dance. I really wanted to dance, so my sisters took me, taught, brought me to the Henry Street Playhouse Music School. I hated that. It was to teach me how to play piano. I hated it because the woman hit my hands every time I made a room. <laughs> oh my gosh, I would hate that too. <laughs> well, you know, I never got hit. <laughs> and it was like, so I would take the money and I'd ride up and down the subway. Until it's time to go home, and I'd go home. Like I went to school, <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, I really was interested. And in my sisters, they were much older than me, introduced me to modern dancers, and so I started to really learn dancing, and that was lots of fun. And improvising, and I loved improvising. So I was dancing, and my sisters were singing. And then uh my sisters my sister Gloria had a child, she had two children, I had children, Emma my some of our children's children, and we all are in theater. <laughs> <laughs> in one way or another. Right. And so when it comes to, to that next generation,
0: your your you know, your children's children, what do you hope to pass on to them?
1: Well, my daughter is a fantastic director. She's a great actress, and she's really she can really, really improvise. She is so funny. And Monique, who is Gloria's daughter, is a very accomplished actress. And then, out of this, Monique had a son. And he, there's a group called, a tribe called Red. They're DJs. And sometimes what's added is out of native music. So all of them, all these people, all of us are in theater somehow. A family affair. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know why.
0: (laughs) That was one thing. (laughs) So
1: what's next on the horizon? For me? Yes. Um, I talk too much. Let's see. (laughs) I have a big thing. A number of them. I'm 85. You know, Patrick, <laughs> I, I'm not a spring chicken.
0: But it doesn't sound like you have. You're going to be slowing down anytime soon.
1: Well, that's what someone, the journalist over here, he said that. You know, when, uh, when we got panned in the New York Times, he said, "Will that stop you?" And I, said, I don't know. If was, you know. And he says, "I don't know why I'm asking you that question because nothing stops you. <laughs> you do what you want to do, and that's how I feel. I do what I want to do." But it's curiosity and why, which always comes up with me. And and it's one of the things when, when I'm teaching ensemble work and people want to do something or make something or they want to do a workshop, I ask the question, why? It's really a big question to me, why? I think I carry that with me all the time. I carry it with me now. I've been thinking a lot about responsibility again. And how uh, responsibility doesn't start when you're, it shouldn't start when you're you're just 21 years old and starting to have babies. It it has to start much earlier than that. And that's one of the things that I've been thinking about now. Like, why do you drink? There's a lot of reasons why we drink. Uh, Why do we do drugs? There's a lot of reasons why you do drugs. Uh, why do you run away? There's a lot of reasons that you run away. But it's having to face it that's the big thing. And how do you transfer it from your heart to your brain, being able to face what you did or face something that happened? And and that's why stories are so important. Facing it and bringing it to a place where you can pick it up and look at it on all sides. That's what's ahead of for me. That's how I've been thinking the last couple of months yeah. about responsibility. And when I was teaching, sometimes when you sit with a group of Native students, and you, you go around the circle and say, well, what do you want to do and how come you're here and so forth? And they'll say, well, I want to be on television. I want to be a movie. I want to be a star, which is great. But you need the, the steps to get there, you know, and. My feeling is, I don't want to see bad acting from natives on, on television. <laughs> you know, get yourself together and really study a lot of this. And I know how hard that is. And and that's, I think, is what I one of the things I want to do. Young native people come in to New York City. I would like to have a workshop that uh, we all know and understand each other, and we don't have to hide. This
0: has actually been one of the rare appearances of Muriel on a podcast, so I'm extremely grateful for her time and openness in our conversation. Also, a big thank you to you for joining Muriel and me today. But remember, the conversation continues not only with her audition story bonus episode, but also with the final five questions on the Win Me blog. You'll find links to all that and more in the show notes or by going to whyillnevermakeit.com. Well, that does it for me, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by John Bartman and Blue Dot Sessions. Why I'll Never Make It is a WinMe Media production, and it is part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It.
1: Well, I think it's a fun title. Why, I'll never make it. <laughs> <laughs> it was the reason I said yes, because, oh, that, that sounds like me.
0: <laughs> yeah, it either turns off artists or, or it makes them kind of laugh and go, yeah, yeah, I get it. So it's it's a, it's a very a polarizing title, one way or the other.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a good, it, you know, because I think of all the things that... Uh, That's different than making it. That's what I I think of. So Mm -hmm. many things that are so different than that that make me feel good.
0: Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work